Good evening and welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, your host for this program, and I'm coming to you over EWTN. Thank you for joining us. We've been, during this last number of months on the Deep in Scripture program, we've been focusing on scriptures that uh, my guests and I consider very important from uh, the letters of St. Paul. We've been focusing on St. Paul for a year now as a result of Pope Benedict's encouragement. But now as June is upon us, we approach a new year, and he has asked us to focus on the priesthood and the year of the priest, and it's, a, it's of course, a, an important theme. In many ways, it's the priesthood that, that sets apart the Catholic faith from other Christian traditions. There certainly are other Christian traditions that have priests, call their uh, ministers priests, and especially in Eastern Orthodox, we recognize the validity of orders in, in the Eastern Church. But without the priesthood, as soon as the Reformation set the priesthood aside, it not only affect the ordination of a man to serve Jesus in that position, but it began affecting everything else in the order of the church. It began affecting the sacraments, began affecting marriage, the understanding of sacraments and marriage. And in fact, it began affecting ordination and then affecting what is done in worship, in liturgy, whether there was a liturgy or not, began affecting whether one would understood, one understand the concept of sacrifice in worship, in the Lord's Supper, I'm purposely using the terms that I used as a Protestant minister, because in time, without a priesthood, we would not use any sacrificial terminology, because we did not recognize that in the Lord's Supper there was a sacrifice. And in many ways, all of this is traced back to a rejection of the priesthood and a rejection of authority within the church and the hierarchy. This year, we're, I'm going to ask my guests Around this theme, rather than only focus on the theme of the priest and priestly ordination for this entire year, I'm going to ask my guests to choose verses from anywhere in Scripture that were particularly important to them to help them discern their vocational call, whether it was to priesthood or to laity, to the diaconate, to the married life, to the, the life of celibacy. Basically, verses that help them discern how God was calling them to serve him with their lives. And, of course, that opens the, the entire scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, many, many verses that can challenge us as we seek to understand how God is calling us. And so tonight's program is, is if you will, that kickoff program for this year and I'm very excited to have as our guest tonight Monsignor Stuart Swetland. Uh, actually, I couldn't think of anyone I'd rather have uh, on this program to kick off this new year. Uh, Monsignor Swetland is a convert to the Catholic Church. Um, he comes from a, you know, a very wide background of, of, uh, with a degree in physics, and then he spent time in the United States Naval Academy. Uh, he served uh, with honor. Uh, you and I in the services. Uh, if you go to the website, deepinscripture.com, you'll see Monsignor's uh, description of his uh, background. 
also talks about his uh, conversion, and then now he serves as a priest at uh, Mount St. Mary's Seminary. And um, he chose as his passage tonight a very familiar passage. You may not remember the text, the address in the Bible where it comes from, but I'm sure you've heard the verse that we're going to look at tonight. It's Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Before I read that, though, I want to remind you, first of all, of the website, deepinscripture.com. If you go to the website, you'll see a variety of of, uh, wonderful links. You'll find information about the Coming Home Network International. You'll also find a link that allows you to watch this program live online. Um, And you can click right directly from the deepinscripture.com website to to watch us. You can also contact us. We would love to hear from you. Sometimes when we do this program, from the emails and phone calls that we do receive, we know that there are a few of you out there listening. But if there's anything we can do to help you in your spiritual journey or comments you would have about making the program better, please contact us. You can do so at 800-664-5110 or 740-450-1175. Or you can send me an email at Marcus at deepinscripture.com. Now, this text in Romans is uh, its one of those verses that there's so much to, to talk about in this particular verse because it so directly connects to the needs of our lives, and especially in this area of trying to answer the question that I remember as a pastor I would receive all the time from particularly young adults who would uh, be trying to figure out what college they want to go to, what career, uh, single or married, all those questions. And this verse would constantly come up as a word of encouragement. But there's so much more to this verse, and we'll look at this in a moment. Let me read Romans 8.28, and then we'll take a break. And when we rejoin Father Monsignor, uh, Monsignor Swetland will have joined us for tonight's program. The verse is Romans 8. 28. St. Paul wrote, We know that in everything God works for good with those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, your host, and you're hearing this on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. Next time on The Journey Home, Join Marcus as he welcomes Jewish convert Father Jay Toborowski to the show. Find out what convinced him to leave his faith tradition and make the journey home to the Catholic Church. That's on the next Journey Home, only on EWTN. The Journey Home is seen and heard around the world on EWTN. For dates and times in your area, log on to EWTN.com. Follow the compelling journey of one man who became a Church of Christ minister and found himself entering the Catholic Church. Bruce Sullivan shares his conversion story in his new book titled Christ in His Fullness. In this book, he communicates a passionate love for Christ and the inexhaustible treasures of grace found in the Catholic Church. Perhaps you, too, will discover the same riches in the fullness of Christ. To order a copy of this book for yourself or a friend, please visit our website, www.chnetwork.org or call us at 1-800-664-5110.
All right, welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, your host, and I'm joined tonight by Monsignor Stuart Swetland. Hello, Monsignor. Good to be with you, Marcus. Well, thank you. I know you're very busy at uh, Mount St. Mary's Seminary. Um, are classes already started for the summer? Uh, summer classes are started at the seminary, of course. The seminarians are out at the, their parishes or their summer assignments, uh, some overseas, some doing language training, some at the parishes. But the university has undergraduate and graduate students as well who are just starting their summer session. All right. And you may have heard during the break that this coming Monday night, my guest on the journey home is Father Taborowski, who's a graduate of Mount St. Mary Seminary. Yes, that's correct. It's good to, good to see them going on to, good, uh, to do great work for the Lord. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And he, uh, of course, enjoyed his time there. In fact, I might even stop by there. I'm getting ready to travel tomorrow morning out to speak at the Union League in Philadelphia. You've ever been there? I've not been in the Union League, but you're going to a great city, wonderful things going on there uh, with the church. Well, the reason I mentioned the Union League, of course, is uh, it's, a, it's a center for the support of uh, the troops. Uh, it was a, a society, I think, started during the Civil War to support the troops. For and they've done great work uh, in, in doing that, continue to do that. That's right. So I may stop down your neck of the woods if I'm driving around, but we, we asked you to pick a, a a text, and uh, I don't think you actually knew that we were going to start this year tonight on the focus of vocation, but you couldn't have picked a better text. Well, it's one that has meant so much to me over the years. Uh, first taught to me, like many of us learned our scripture, first taught to me by my mother at home, uh, and uh, reinforced by, a, 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 at the time, we, there was no we were, we were Lutherans by tradition, but uh, where we were living, there was no Lutheran church, so we were going to a Baptist church. So it was reinforced by a, a Baptist minister who did a whole year of Sunday night services uh, in Romans. Uh, he didn't get very far, but this verse is one he spent many, uh, many weeks on. Uh, but it's one of those verses that has served me well throughout my life. I've been able to come back to it at, a, a, I hope, a deeper level each time uh, through many stages of my life. But it's always guided me in attempting to find, as best I can, uh, the will of God in my life, and knowing that if I do that, uh, that God is going to be there uh, in His, with His good grace, to to keep me and to guide me. Uh, one thing I noticed with this text, and is that I learned it a little differently. What I read over the air was from the Revised Standard Version. And I grew up memorizing the King Jimmy, uh, King James Version. And I, refer, I remember correctly, that version went, all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Slightly different. And that is the version I, I first memorized, too. Um, I probably now know it because for years uh, in the Catholic Church, we used the New American as the lectionary text. Mm -hmm that I probably have preached about it mostly from the New American Translation, but that old King James uh, version, and we know that all things work together for good for those, to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose, yes. is, uh, is the way I first memorized it as well. I, I think that this is one area where the different translations are very close, mm -hmm. um, and there's not a whole lot of uh, quibbling to be done about translation. I, the only reason I did bring that up mm -hmm. is because... I've become, over the years, and this is part of the reason of my own journey into the Catholic faith, I, I've become sensitive to the fact that as I use, let's say, this text 
in different ways in my teaching and preaching, first in young life and then as a Presbyterian pastor for about 10 years, that uh, it can be applied in a variety of different ways. And, and sometimes I've got, I look back and see that I overstepped bounds in the way that I applied this verse and others in terms of giving a stamp of approval to someone's decision to go in a certain direction. How do you measure? How do you know if God is calling you to do something or not do something? And we would look for a verse or you know a paragraph or a collection of verses that we could use as counseling tools to give encouragement. And there's a danger in that uh, in terms of speaking for God and, and a part of that is, uh, in, at least in my view, is that the beauty of the Catholic view is it recognizes that a part of the, the way God calls you sometimes often in, involves suffering, involves giving up. It doesn't only involve blessings. Exactly. And, and I've been speaking uh, uh, myself because I've been uh, dealing with people in the ministry. Maybe it's just because I'm getting older I've been speaking a great deal in the last uh, few months, especially during our Lenten season, uh, looking closely at the letter, to the, uh, letter um, uh, to the Hebrews, chapter 12, about perseverance in the suffering that comes our way, how God builds us up through that. Uh, I think it's important that we recognize that uh, God says that we'll work together for good in this passage. He doesn't say it's going to work out like we want it to, <laughs> or it's going to work out with all blessings. Because in the, in the mind of God, often good is brought about for, through great suffering and great difficulty. We most perfectly see that, of course, in the reality of the cross. Uh, and I think that it can be dangerous to, to, to try to preach a, a crossless Christianity, uh, a Christianity that doesn't have a, what Bonhoeffer would call cheap grace, that doesn't have a focus on the reality, that often God calls us to persevere in difficult times, because it's through those difficult times and those sufferings that it's going to bring good for ourselves and for others. Yeah, the, again, this may not be a, a, a perfect exegetical comparison, but it seems to me that I, I like the Revised Standard Version of this because, it, to me, it puts an emphasis in a very correct place. Where in, There were times in my more immature spiritual journey when the old way I translated, all things work together for good to those that love God and are called according to his purpose. The, to me, the emphasis was always, everything's going to work out. It's going to work out. Um, whereas in the, the RSV, the emphasis is on, we know that in everything, God works for good. Mm-hmm. God works for good. He's the emphasis in this passage, and he's the emphasis in defining what is good for us. Exactly. And, you know, that's where, I mean, the, the uh, Hebrews is so good talking about the fact that every son, every child that is a real child is going to go through trials and discipline because it, it's necessary for our growth. Uh, and as we get older, we also know that we, we have to sanctify our diminishments. You know, we get less. I'm just turned 50, so I'm starting to feel that physically in many ways. Uh, and, you know, uh, if God calls us to live a long life, he calls us to, to uh, accept the fact that we are going to be uh, diminishing in very significant ways as part of our uh, being disciplined, being able to grow, being able to become more uh, spiritually, uh, and also to be able to link, unite our suffering 
with that of Christ. I think, uh, you know, we sometimes overlook Colossians 1.24 that calls us mm. to make up in our own selves uh, the, the continued reality of the suffering of Christ. Uh, it's, a, it's an important verse that sometimes, at least in my upbringing, wasn't emphasized. And, uh, the vicarious suffering, that we can unite our suffering with Christ, and it can be a source of grace. Well, Father, let's, let's dig deeper into this passage, if you would. Um, and I, I almost hate to set the agenda on you because I know that you've, you, you like this passage. Uh, the first thing that strikes at me as I would love to ask you to, to address is the beginning of this passage, um, which in the Greek is just really one word, odamen, which is this word, we know that. We know that. And I, I'm wondering if that's a bit presumptuous because I'm wondering if, in fact, everyone who's listening knows this passage. What, what do you think Paul was implying rhetorically, in a way, mm-hmm. by that word, use the word, we know that? Well, I think what we see here is, remember, the, the, the uh, and I'm sure many of your listeners know this, but the, the letter uh, to the church in Rome, what we call Romans, and in many ways Paul's most complete work, was written to a church that he did not found. It was already a church that was established. This is his letter of introduction. He knows about the church in Rome because the Christian community was able to communicate with each other. But as he writes this letter of introduction, hoping to get them to sponsor him in more missionary activities elsewhere, and to prepare them for his arrival so they know the gospel he's been preaching, he's heard enough about the community there and knows enough about the preaching that is going on in the various local churches in his day and age to know that the church in Rome will know this, that they will know the providential love of God, and that God is at work, even in the midst of the great suffering the church in Rome was going through at the time, that God was at work to bring about good. And the confidence he has in that, as he writes, really flows from what this whole chapter, chapter 8, is doing. It is talking about life in the Spirit what life is like in the Spirit, uh, and what God is doing in this present age as we groan and are in agony, awaiting the full redemption that will come at the end of time. He's talking about the Spirit, even now at work, bringing about that guilt, good, building it up, building up the kingdom. So it's in that kind of context where he speaks of the Spirit making, uh, making intercession for us over and above what we're able to do for ourselves with groan, groans and that, that we cannot fully understand, this is what the church in Rome is experiencing. And then he can confidently say, we, and I think the we here is the, the body of Christ, know that God is making these things work together. And I think that's a powerful statement of confidence that really speaks to the, uh, the theological virtue of hope. I suppose I might be reading a bit into that, that simple Greek word that he begins with, that he's chosen to begin with, uh, it, it seems to me there's also this level of in that one simple verse, what we see is reference to the great continuity of our faith with our great Jewish heritage, because in a way, this summarizes uh, the best part of the theme of the entire Old Testament, and that is that God does work for good with those that love him and are called according to his purpose. 
you know, men and women in the people of God, the family of God, are called according to his purpose. And, and the, the verse beginning with verse 29, he talks about, you know, how this calling comes about with the foreknowledge and predestination and all of that. But the call in the Old Testament to love God, and we see this constant promises in all the Psalms and in the prophets and the benefits that will come to people if they dedicate their life to God. Uh, sometimes we caricature the Old Testament to look like it's you get good if you do good, you get bad if you do bad, but it isn't always that tight. There's really this, like in the book of Job. So we see this, all. it's like the whole Old Testament is summarized in this truth of verse 28. And, and that calling to hope and we, you know, seeing the lived out uh, reality in the in the chosen people, but see it even you know, more so brought to its fulfillment in Christ. Mm-hmm. And he's going to get into that in chapters nine to eleven, when he talks about the relationship between the the, the church of the, the church and, and the Jewish people. Uh, also, he has it follow right along with the challenge that you've got to be doing some things for that hope to be true. And the things you need to be doing is, one, you need to be looking for, as best you can, the will of God in your life. Uh, you know, the great uh, boast that is ours, that we can say that the God who created everything that is, created the entire universe and holds it in existence, that that God has a will for us, each individually, each particular, what we call in the Catholic tradition the particular call that each of us have. Now, all of us universally have the call to be holy, to be a saint. But the fact that each and every one of us also has a particular call to do the things that God is calling us to do, and that God's plan from all of creation was he created us for a purpose. And the thing that will bring us the greatest joy, the greatest peace, the greatest fulfillment is to find that vocation and to do it well. Uh, that speaks of, uh, of the great dignity that is ours. So while it's a passage that speaks of hope, it's also a challenge to us to spend the time and do the discernment necessary to discover, in very specific detail, God's call for us. There's um, a number of key words in this passage that need further explanation. All right, and uh, and we're going to take another break in a moment. And I'm going to. It seems to me that at least four words in this passage that I'd love to have you talk about to the audience, um, or maybe five words, uh, is the word good. What, what is it, what's meant by good? Um, the word love, with those who love him. What does that mean for our audience? Um, the word called, what does that mean? You talked a little bit about that. Also then the word is purpose, his will, and that's a big question in so many people's minds. How do I know the will of God? And, but another one, of course, is in everything. And those five words kind of address this entire passage. Mm-hmm. Let's take a break. We come back, Monsignor, I'll let you decide which of those five you want to tackle first uh, because this might then help our audience uh, understand how God is really speaking to them through this passage. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grode. I am joined tonight by Monsignor Stuart Swetland. You're hearing us on EWTN, the Global Catholic Radio Network. Next time on Life on the Rock. 
It is said that God does not call the qualified, but qualifies the ones whom he calls. Tune in when former Major League Soccer player Chase Hilgenbrink joins Doug and Father Mark to talk about entering the seminary. That's on the next Life on the Rock, only on EWTN. Life on the Rock is seen and heard around the world on EWTN. For dates and times in your area, log on to EWTN.com. Written by Carl Adam, Roots of the Reformation gives a historically sensitive and accurate analysis of the cases of the Reformation that stands as a valid and sometimes unsettling challenge to the presuppositions of Protestants and Catholics alike. This valuable resource is a powerful summary of the issues that led to the Reformation and their implications today. To order a copy of this book for yourself or a friend, please visit our website, www.chnetwork.org, or call us at 1-800-664-5110. Good evening and welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, your host, joined tonight by Monsignor Stuart Swetland. And we're looking at Romans chapter 8, verse 28. It's such a short verse, I can read it for you now. We know that in everything God works for good with those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. Monsignor, which of those five uh, verse, five terms would you like to jump into? Well, let's start with the most important in many ways, um, uh, love. Let's talk, start here in the Greek. Yeah, we're talking about agape love. Yes. To love God. And I think sometimes we don't, we talk a lot about love of God. We don't actually maybe explain it as much as we should. Um, I like when I'm teaching my students, especially my undergrads, but also with my seminarians, to talk about love as a choice. Uh, It's an act of the will by which we choose to want, will, and work for what's best for the other. There is a sense that that's what it means when we live in relationship. This idea of love as a the love of benevolence, to, to, to want and to will and to work for what's best for the other. Now, we see that uh, a husband married to a wife, there's also affection there, but there should be the, be, uh, the love of benevolence, which wants and wills and works for what's best for the other. This makes sense to me of the command to love our enemies. You know, how am I to love someone who, who uh, is my enemy? Well, I'm to want and will and to work for what's best for them. Uh, uh, let's say one has in one's family a, uh, a problematic relative, maybe a, an alcoholic uncle or something like that, and you want what's, you, you really want to say, well, I love my uncle. And, of course, that means that you want and will and work for what's best for him. So you may be working and doing things that, that he finds difficult, like challenging him, him to give up drink uh, or to seek uh, help, uh, maybe uh, uh, not seeming to be, he's appeared to doesn't seem loving to me, but in fact it is loving because you're wanting and willing and working for the best for him. And our enemies, I mean, I often say this about Osama bin Laden. We're called to love Osama bin Laden. How do I love such a person? Well, I want and will and work for what's best for him. What's best for him? I believe what's best for him is being captured, so he has a chance to repent from the wickedness that he's responsible for. So that's what it means to love another person. What does it mean to love God? Well, in a way you can apply this to God. We should want, will, and work for what's best for God. And what's best for God? Well, we know that God is perfectly good, 
And what's best for God is God's will. So in many ways, when we say to love God, we're talking about to live in a relationship with him in such a way that we want his will to be brought about in our lives and in everyone in the world, in all the world. And so in a way, it's another way of, uh, of praying the Lord's Prayer to talk about loving God, to want and work and will for that kingdom to come. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So I, I think it's important that we recognize that's what's going on, and that's not possible on our own. Only God can put that love in us. So we open ourselves to relationship with him, and he pours forth in us his divine life so we can live and love that way. You know, when I became a Catholic, Monsignor, I, a lot of things uh, shifted my theology and my understanding of my Lord Jesus. I mean, I've loved him and followed him for many years before I thought of, about becoming Catholic. But one of the key things that changed in my understanding of my relationship with God when I became Catholic was understanding the emphasis on our sonship and not merely the the juridical declaration of being forgiven that I always understood in my Calvinist understanding where uh, the righteousness of God is imputed to me covering up my my sinful self, but recognizing, Noah, that by baptism and through the work of grace, I truly become his son. I understood that as a Protestant, but I didn't appreciate it. And when I came to love, what you've just said about love, I agree with. And, and But that's also what I taught as a Presbyterian, love is a choice. And, and uh, I would emphasize that in premarital counseling. But I agree with that. I don't, I don't challenge that idea, but I remember thinking that as a son, I love my earthly father. Part of that is a choice because, how do I say this on, on, on radio, but in certain aspects, my dad was, was a father only a son could love. I mean, he, uh, and I wept terribly when he died because he meant so much to me. But my love for him was very much a choice, but it also was affection but the difference between the affection that I see emphasized in worldly love that we see all around us where love is only an affection and not so much a choice. Hey, you know, if I don't feel it anymore, then I don't love. That's the worldly view. Is that the affection that I see connected with the kind of love you're talking about for God or for one another is a love that has a trajectory to it. It's not in a trajectory towards me. In other words, I'm not drawn to someone through my affections because of what is good for me, but I'm drawn to them in this, as in conjunction with my choosing to love them. But as a result, what grace also does is change not just my mind but my heart, so that I want, in my love for God, I want Him to be proud of me. I don't want to do anything that 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 would make God ashamed of me, and. You know, because I want him to love me, not just because he chooses to love me, regardless of what I am, that's kind of the Calvinist way, but because I am his son. And there's that interesting aspect of, you know, we aren't just minds, but as from a Catholic perspective, we're whole people that involves all that we are. And this, the reason I make this correction, not, not correction, but the only reason I, I make this, given from my particular Calvinist background, is... <clears throat> our dedication to love God, let's say for this verse to work, doesn't involve our feelings. It involves our choices, you said. Mm -hmm. But with that choice, 
we do get changed. So our love becomes an affection for God if we allow it. I believe that to be true as I've seen it happen in my own mind. Most certainly. And, you know, the the fact, the ontological fact that we are God's children now, Mm -hmm. that we're brought into the family. Oh, happy thought, oh, necessary sin that brought us such a redeemer. Because this is the difference between the relationship Adam and Eve had with God and that we have in Christ. We can be brought right into the inner workings, if you will, of the triune God as part of the family because of now we share as co-heirs with the Son. Uh, and, and all that means, and, 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 and the family relationship is really that. Uh, earlier in this chapter, of course, Paul reminds us that the Spirit is necessary for us to be able to call God Abba. But given that we have life in the Spirit, we do have the privilege of calling uh, God Abba. And he really treats us as sons and daughters in the Son. A marvelous thing. Uh, of course, we take on a great family tradition when we take on this family. I, I, when I teach the little kids, I say that when you make the sign of the cross, you're signing your family name. Because that's the name we now take on in baptism, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's our last name. That's the family we really belong to. Um, And that's the name that we all share because we really are brothers and sisters in Christ. Now let me ask you, in this passage, we've just focused on this love, actually, as a criteria, right? I mean, that's kind of the way he describes it. Mm -hmm. We know that in everything God works for good with those who love him. Now, what's your thoughts? What's your, your, your sense of this in terms of how we can look at our lives in the way God works in our life in conjunction to how we've chosen to follow him? Right. Well, first, I think we have to purge wrong ideas that, that, that God, that, you know, that this is somehow a reward for loving him, mm-hmm. uh, is that things work together for good. That's, I think, the wrong way of thinking about it. It's the fact that God, as a loving Father, knows what's best for us. And if we're living according to his purposes and his will, if we're really loving him and living in that relationship, it is what's best for us. It is what will allow us to flourish and have that peace, as Paul says elsewhere, that surpasses all understanding. And that if we choose to live differently, it's not like God's going to zap us because we're not living as a good son or a good daughter, but that any other choice than to live in this loving relationship with God is going to lead to our diminishment. We are made less by it because we're living out basically a lie. We're not living up to become, as Matthew Kelly might put it, the best version of ourselves. We're choosing to live a lesser version of ourselves if we don't live in this love relationship with God. Well, if we look at the prodigal son story, for example, uh, the father never ceased to love the son, but the son didn't benefit by his father's love because he had turned away. Right. It wasn't the father penalizing or even rewarding the son once the the son turned back, but we, we enable God to give us what's good for us by turning to him. To lavish. Uh, to lavish himself upon us. Uh, you know, it's funny, when I went, went to college, uh, of course, typical 18-year-old, I thought my dad was one of the dumbest people in the, you know, in the world. <laughs> and I went away, and by about 25, I had seven years of schooling. And what was surprising is how smart my dad had gotten during my seven years of schooling, <laughs> because I realized how much wisdom there was in the man. Now, my dad was typical of his generation. He had to leave school early because of the Depression, 
uh, you know, went back and got a GED, but, I mean, he didn't have the formal education that I've been privileged to uh, participate in, but he had learned life's lessons, not, uh, and not the least of which was the importance of being a God-centered man. And uh, when I look back now, and he's, my father's also passed, what I look back now and recognize is that uh, he was living out uh, this verse in a very real way. We know that it doesn't say that there's only a, uh, a connect-disconnect aspect of this for those that love, because we know, going back earlier in Romans, um, we see that he, uh, Paul made that very clear statement when he says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for right. us. In other words, long before we loved him, he loved us. Right. Long before we loved him, he worked into our lives in ways that we're blind to. Right. But yet there's a bit of a connect here. So it seems that it, a part of this is our need to turn to him and to choose to hear him and to follow him to understand him and to seek to understand what he wants us to do in our life. That's part of it. That's all love. And that's, of course, connected to we demonstrate our love to God towards loving our neighbor. So there's that whole aspect. But then there's the last half of that also. Seems like another qualifier for those who are called according to his purpose. Right. How about this word called? Yes, the kletos, this interesting use of this term. I mean, because immediately, at least as I read this, I link this verse, and the, it's the same term used in Romans 1.1, when Paul speaks of himself. Mm-hmm. You know, he's writing to the church, this church, he's introducing himself, and he says, Greetings from Paul, a doulos of Christ Jesus, a slave of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, and set apart to proclaim the gospel of God. Uh, you know, it, it, what, a, what an opening. I mean, what a, what a way to introduce yourself to the, to the community to talk about being called to be an official witness and set apart to proclaim the gospel. And then here we see the same term used that describe we Christians as those who are called, the, you know, who are called uh, according to God's purpose. You know, it, it's a description of what we are called to be, that God loves us so much that he, he has a plan for our lives. Uh, that no one is worthless, and no part of our life is worthless. Every part of it is meant to be integrated into a whole, a, whole, uh, a pleasing sacrifice to God, as he says in Romans 12, 1, 1 and 2. Um, so we see this. You know, Paul, who calls himself, I, I said the Greek, the doulos, the slave of Christ Jesus, you know, that wonderful term that sometimes translates servant, sometimes a slave, mm-hmm. that links to this idea of servant giving of oneself, pouring oneself out as gift, the way Christ poured himself out as a gift. And as we see in the Old Testament, the prophets and patriarchs being that kind of servant of, of, of the living God. Well, if you want to make, it's a neat parallel you've pointed out with Romans 1.1 and Romans 8.28, because that first part, uh, Paulos, servant of Jesus Christ, is essentially parallel to loving God. Yes. I mean, that's the general call that all of us are called to do. We are, every one of us, in response to his grace, called to love him. And that's basically following out the Beatitudes. We recognize, we detach ourselves from the world, and we attach ourselves to Jesus. We, we love him. And, but there's a, 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 then he goes on to say, okay, in the midst of that, that more general surrender of myself that we're all called to do to him, we're all called to be servants of Jesus Christ, there was a specific calling that he recognized, called to be an apostle. In this verse, 
called according to his purpose. Right. Does God have a specific call for every individual that they are then to try to discover? Yes. And I, I, I love to use the example of the rich young man uh, with when I'm talking about this, because there you see both aspects playing out. The universal call to holiness and relationship to God and the particular call. Because that, if you know, remember the story, the man goes... I'll tell everyone, it's on, it's... Uh, Mark chapter 10, Mark chapter example. 10, beginning with verse 17, for those of you that want to look it up. Right. And the rich young man, uh, Jesus is leaving town, he goes running up. I find that already a great role reversal, a rich man running after this poor beggar uh, rabbi, this poor homeless rabbi. But he goes running up, he kneels down, and he begs, he says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit everlasting life? And uh, Jesus answers, well, you know, uh, keep the commandments. And he goes, which ones? And Jesus gives a summary of the Ten Commandments. He's saying to him, you know, to what we would say, be a saint, the universal call to holiness, the call to live in a loving relationship with God and to live out the, the Torah, the covenant that comes from that. But the rich young man, who seems to be such a good man trying to do this, says, I've been, I've been doing this since my youth. What more must I do? And that's when Jesus, looking at him with love, says to him, Go sell all that you have, and then after that, come and follow me. Jesus, in a very specific way, says to the rich young man what his particular calling was. That rich young man's particular calling was to sell everything, and to be a radical disciple of Jesus. Now, the scriptures tell us the, guy, the man goes away sad because his possessions were many. He can't say yes to his particular calling, and it leaves him sad. It leaves him without the joy that comes and the peace that comes from doing God's will. Now, not everybody's called to that kind of radical discipleship. A few chapters earlier, there was another man who encountered Jesus who had demons cast out from, from him in Mark 5, uh, the demoniac who begs Jesus to allow him to be a radical disciple. He wants to follow Jesus wherever he wants, naturally. He just got demons thrown out, uh, cast out from him. But Jesus says to him, no, you go back to your home, you go back to where you come from, and you tell them what I've done for you. That man was called to be uh, a layperson in the world, as we would say it today, doing the ordinary things of a, of a man in the world and giving witness to Christ through them. This rich young man was called to be a radical disciple, but he missed his calling. And both of these examples from Mark are just two of many that shows that each and every person is created by God with a purpose in with vocation in mind, uh, call to holiness, and particular things that he's to do, not just, or she's to do, not just he, uh, once in a while or, or the big things in life, but every part of our life. I, as I've been called to be a priest. I've been a priest 18 years now, but I still have to do discernment about what God wants me to do inside of that mm-hmm. calling, in the particular uh, and in the day-to-day. Well, the, uh, the story of the rich young ruler has always been a, a great inspiration to me. It was probably the the, the text that uh, that I prayed over a lot when I decided to leave engineering to go to seminary. Uh, and part of it was recognizing, as you said, that this text by Jesus does not mean that every single person has got to go and sell everything they've got and follow Jesus in that radical way. But to ask ourselves, maybe first of all, recognizing that the reason that that rich young ruler could do what Christ was calling him to do, go sell and give it away, was that beforehand God had already blessed his life with many gifts. 
that he was then to, to distribute. And it makes me think that every one of us, all that we have is a gift of God. And the richest man in the world was not given that gift for himself, but to share. And so we, each one of us need to look at whether we're rich or poor or good-looking or slovenly or whatever, that these are avenues and opportunities and gifts for the glory of God as opposed to benefits for ourselves. And in this case, the rich young ruler, in that sense, had, had become so attached to these things that he had been given in the first place, which were the, for the good of others, that he couldn't let go of them. And, you know, another part of this, Monsignor, which I didn't learn until after becoming a Catholic, but there's an old tradition that this rich young ruler didn't always stay away from Jesus. There was an old tradition that that rich young ruler's name was really Barnabas. Uh, and that at some point in time, kind of like that one story, you know, where Jesus has the two brothers and, and the one says to the father, I'll do it, and then doesn't. Mm-hmm. And the other one says, I won't do it, but then does. Right. That in this, we don't know the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would, said, would say. But to me, I've always seen that thought as an encouragement to us because there may be people listening. Right who, in fact, have spent a lot of their time running away from God. Right. But it's never late. It's never too late to respond now. Right, exactly. Exactly. Why don't we take another break? We'll come back, and, and Father, there was a couple other words there that I'd least like us to look at as we wrap this up, one of which is the word of everything. Does everything work together for good? What does he mean by that? And, uh, and then we'll see how, how can we really apply this in the everyday struggles of our lives. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodide. I'm joined tonight by Monsignor Stuart Swetland, and you're hearing us on EWTN, the Global Catholic Radio Network. The Coming Home Network International and Marcus Grodide invite you to join us for our seventh annual Deep in History Conference coming this fall to Columbus, Ohio. This year, we will begin on the rock, looking to understand the question of authority, the pillar and bulwark of truth. Join us the weekend of October 23rd as we bring together another exciting list of speakers. For more information, go to deepinhistory.com or call us at 800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. We've got a few moments. Uh, Father... um, what about everything? Well, this is a, a pos in the Greek. is It's um, it's a common word, um, meaning all things, uh, all all things in some translations, everything. Um, and it really does mean what it says. And this is one of the amazing things. It's in all circumstances and in all. It's everything uh, that God's providential care has a plan for all of creation. Uh, it wasn't that long ago I was teaching on the church's social teaching. Um, and, you know, you, you think of all the wonderful things the church has given us, and it's the tradition, the social tradition of applying the good news of Jesus Christ to the social order, to, the, to economics, to politics. And uh, someone was asking me about, uh, uh, is it just, you know, is, is all of creation just for us humans to get saved? And that's the whole purpose of it all. 
And I said, no, that, and this is where I took them right to Romans 8 and showed them that all creation is in agony awaiting for the revelation of the Son of God, that, that the fall affected all of creation and sin affected all of creation, which we see quite clearly now through you know, some of the effects that our human uh, selfishness has had on the greater, you know, the greater environment, uh, and as well as on other humans. And we recognize that in God's salvific plan, he wants to save it all. There'll be a new heaven and a new earth, and there'll be this recreation of all things, and we'll be brought together in its fulfillment. But there isn't, and, I, and then as a, I think as a Protestant, I didn't see this, that our efforts here and now contribute to the building up of God's kingdom. That what we do here and now matters now and in the life to come. That we're providing, if you will, the raw material that God's going to use in his recreation of all things. So God's working it all out that everything will work together. Now, how is that going to happen? I, that is literally above our, uh, our knowing. Uh, but it is, in fact, uh, God's salvific plan. So that's why it's important that we bring our effort, our, our work, our blood, sweat, and tears, and we bring it when we come to the Eucharist to place up on the altar in union with the holy sacrifice of the Mass. Because God's going to take all of our work, all of our efforts up, and he's going to transform them. The Second Vatican Council said that all the good fruits of our human endeavor will be found again in the kingdom, freed of the tarnish of sin and death. And just like, or in a similar way, that the, that the bread and wine is transformed into the body and blood of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, our work and our efforts and what we do to affect the world for the good by the grace of God, like sin affected the world for the bad by our sinfulness, the good that we do through the grace of God, God is using that to bring about and build up the material, the raw material that will become part of his everlasting kingdom. When I think about how this verse could help one of our listeners who might be uh, facing something very difficult, um, as you mentioned earlier, there's elements of hope in this verse because he says we know this, that's hope. Um, there's the element of, of faith. In other words, I believe that God's in control. I trust that. I believe that everything comes from him. But to me, the most proactive part in this verse, actually, I see also in a parallel verse from Proverbs, which has always been my favorite verse. I've mentioned it many times on radio. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. That says, you know, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he'll direct your paths. In other words, this, this confidence that he's going to direct the future. Yes. What do I do? I trust in him. But I, I, the main thing in there, besides not leaning on our own understanding, in other words, I don't have to figure it all out before I make my first step, but is that I acknowledge him in all that I do. And I think in this verse, eight, Romans 8.28, Kind of there's the key of what it means to love him. Is that as we get up tomorrow morning and we begin the day, the first thing we do is we love him. In our prayers, in the attitude that we begin our day with, in the way that we dedicate our day to him, and trusting as we move on tomorrow morning, or if it's tonight before we go to bed, because of things that are pressing on us, our main goal is to let go and love him. 
and you know that attitude of entrusting it all to God. When I was first, I said I first learned this verse at my knee, knee of my mother. Uh, you know, at my mother at my mother's knee. Um, but she used to say to me, and I remember these words um, because she had them inscribed on a sailboat. Of course, being ex-Navy, I love that. That's in my library over my desk in, in my library. Uh, it, it is that the will of God will never lead us where the grace of God cannot keep us. And that's an old slogan, I know, but sometimes these spiritual nuggets are there for us uh, to remember constantly. You know, the will of God will never lead us where the grace of God cannot keep us. And it's like the old, the, the old catechism line, what's, why did God make me? To know, love, and serve him in this life so that I can be happy with him forever in the next. That can be meditated on when you're eight or when you're 80 or anywhere in between. And so can that, the idea of God's providential care for us. As we try to love him in response to him first loving us, we know that he has a plan for us. And if we can discern and live that plan, we can be confident that God will work together with us to bring good about. It may not work out as we would like it to, no promise of that, but it will work together for good. And I think that is very comforting. And one, if I can say one last point, the, sure. uh, uh, you mentioned about God first loving us. I'm reminded that if we're to love with a God-like love, which is the new commandment of love, that means we must make every effort in our love of our brothers and sisters that that love be first. I think, think sometimes we wait around for others to ask for forgiveness before we forgive them. Or we ask, wait for them to seek reconciliation. Oh, we're willing to be reconciled as long as they ask for forgiveness or they ask to be reconciled. But that's not how God treated us. While we were yet sinners, he died for us. And we're called to have that same kind of love for those around us, to be the first to love, to the first to forgive, the first to seek out reconciliation. Well, Monsignor, thank you so much for joining us tonight on Deep in Scripture. It's been an honor. And also thank you for your service and your, and your leadership there at Mont- St. Mary's Seminary. Well, pray, pray for us here at the seminary uh, and uh, for all the seminarians that they prepare to be priests. All right. And uh, also say friend, uh, hello to some of my good friends are like, like Bill Bales and, and others that are also serving with you. We will do that. Thank you. Thank you, Monsignor. And thank all of you for joining us tonight on Deep in Scripture. I, I do pray that uh, Monsignor's words were an encouragement to you. I know that a lot of things in our lives right now uh, can be discouraging. I, I know that sometimes we can feel that God is very far. But in fact, he is very near, and he just waits for us to come to him in love. God bless you. See you next week.